Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, hello. Uh, it's the nose. It's the end of the week. It's time to talk about culture. Uh, there's no Kion Wolf around today. There's like it's one of these sort of slightly empty days in the studio, uh, filled with joy, but not as many bodies around. Uh, and so we can't play you a comic intro. We can't even play you the music from Dunkirk, uh, which is the first thing we'll be talking about today, because it would frighten and upset you. It would ratchet up your anxiety level and. You would say, what's wrong? Something is about to happen. Something really bad is about to happen because you have that music. Uh, let me tell you who's here, and then I'll tell you what we're talking about. Uh, Teresa Kramer is a writer and editor of eContent Magazine and the founding editor of The Cut. Not to be confused with The Cut in New York Magazine. This is The Cut about uh, Connecticut and grumpy people of a certain age. Uh, James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Kate Russian is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart-nominated poet. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit later uh, about uh, a controversy that has arisen about a piece of culture which is, like, I mean, nothing has happened. It is like <laughs> there's, no, there's no preliminary shooting. There's no, there's nothing has been done, and yet there are people who are really upset about this thing. Uh, that's the world we live in these days. And we'll also talk about a magazine profile. It is the profile. I guess I can say this now. It's, it's, it, this, it's so radioactive that it's you, if you talk about it, you get people upset. Uh, it's the cover story in a New York Magazine. It is the profile of Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough and Donald Trump and the peculiar love triangle that they represent. Uh, and I got yelled at it. I get yelled at in my house for having the magazine quietly in my hands in bed reading that article. I got no, I wasn't reading it out loud, and I yelled at just as a thought crime, basically, for having to. But first, we're going to talk about Dunkirk. Dunkirk, obviously, uh, is the new movie directed by Christopher Nolan. It is probably first and, for first and foremost a Christopher Nolan movie and everything else second, although we can debate that. Uh, it, of course, takes place in the early stages of World War II uh, when uh, enormous numbers of British and French troops uh, are surrounded by the British in a tiny coastal town. Uh, and spoiler, I mean, you should know this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, miraculously, a huge number of them, essentially 10 times as many as Winston Churchill thought was possible, were evacuated, um, partly because of a flotilla of 700 uh, local um, English boat owners who – like little little boats that came across the channel uh, and, and helped out. So uh, that's the story. I don't even know, even know that that's exactly the story of this movie. It's one of the things that we're going to have to thrash out here. So um, – so I, I don't know where to begin exactly. Um, James, uh, I'm sure you have so much to say about this. But before we get into the technique, or maybe this is a way into the technique, I don't know. I just got off the phone with Bill Curry, who referred to this as the inside Lewin Davis of military epic movies. And I, <laughs> and I know what he means, too, right? Which is that, yeah, right. that, that this, is, this is this incredibly epic story, but it is essentially told through three very specific individual perspectives, right? It, rather than going for a David Lean kind of sweep, this movie goes for something else. What's the something else, though? 
Well, I think it's, to me, it's a quintessentially internal movie um, in a way. Um, one of the things you mentioned, actually, it's kind of interesting about mentioning Christopher Nolan. I think Christopher Nolan as a director actually is increasingly sort of submerging behind what he's creating. And I mean by that that um, I found uh, Dunkirk to be a sort of immersive experience that once it began, it just didn't stop until the end. It didn't have a sort of standard narrative. It used sound and picture in ways that are almost surrealistic in a way that that sort of, to me, drew me in and became so absorbing that I felt I experienced something about war that was really different. Um, It made me think about the ordinariness of people who get caught up in something that happens that they didn't control. And I'm thinking now of what we face now with with uh, the 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 danger of a, an unstable person leading our country. Who uh, I I have this horrible fear that something could go wrong very quickly, and this film made me think about that. And and I thought that really there's so much history about World War II, and you can read about Dunkirk. And you can think about the things that seem to happen. And it is really complex in a way. All of the various events, the driving of the army, the British army uh, in, toward the shore. And this was a major defeat, really. And it meant that there was a real sort of sense that the possibility of winning the war for the, for, for the British was actually distant. This was a real threat. And I thought this movie really got to the heart of what that feeling was like. It's Some of the images in it, like soldiers lining up single file, waiting at the waves, for example, was an incredibly eloquent statement. Of, like, why are they all lined up? So well, waiting? it has been suggested that, that that's some of the Britishness of this movie. Yes, <laughs> well, uh, definitely so. But it... it, it, it so many elements like that there were and and the fact that instead of showing you a massive air battle the air battles that took place were focused on a, a, a just a small number of planes and the the very visceral nature of the people who were involved the pilots who were involved and the the soldiers on the boats and the threat of the bombs falling and 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 being attacked by by uh, planes coming in and strafing the beach all of those things, um, I just think it's a different thing. Um, I, I think Christopher Nolan is an incredible talent, has an incredible talent for doing that. But it, it's sort of paradoxical that it's almost not about him. He's created something that is really focused away from him and his skills as a director and more on a sort of immersive experience that takes you somewhere completely new like uh, seeing a piece of art or, or or reading a book that really explains something and enlightens you in a different way. See, I knew he'd have a lot to say about this. So, <laughs> I, but Kate, I, I do think in, in that whole idea of the ordinariness uh, of this, you know, I mean, we're many war movies that we grew up watching, if we watched them at all, were about heroes and hero- heroic people. And, you know, I mean, really the young man who's the initial focus of this movie, we don't really even know his name. Apparently is Tommy in the credits. I don't know that that name is ever said anywhere. Uh, our first two encounters of him, w- with him over a short period of time, mostly involve him trying to go poop. Uh, <laughs> he tries to go poop in a, in a village and that doesn't work out so well because <laughs> he gets shot at and so he runs out into the beach and then finds another place to go poop. Well, that you 
you can't be more ordinary than that. You can't be more dragged down than that. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do agree with James that, and this is not a spoiler, but there's like one scene where there's just a series of explosions on the beach in a line, and they just stop before they blow up one particular person. And you just sort of think, well, that wasn't because that particular person was like really nice or special or anything like that, right? Yeah, you know, I think the movie really communicates the randomness of horrible death throughout the the film. Uh, and as I was watching it, I was very engaged by the movie. By I was engaged by the soundtrack and the fact that there was no, not much dialogue. There wasn't any dialogue at the beginning of the film. And I was very engaged by what you referred to, James, as a kind of a surrealistic view of war. But ultimately, I came to see the film as being very flat, although I was very uh, relieved that it was, although it was full of death, it was not full of blood and gore. And I came to think that the movie was really a, uh, a merging of comics and a video game especially from the beginning where we get the perspective of the young, handsome protagonist who's just scrambling to save his life. Uh, and I asked myself, well, who is this for? And then I thought about the, um, the rating. It's PG-13. I said, well, this, this is a PG-13 war movie. And I think it's very ironic that Nolan has said several times that it's not a war movie. Right. And so then my question is then what is it if it's not a war he movie? He says it's a survival movie, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a, okay, it's a survival movie, but I saw it as a movie about uh, the, the heroes of this movie are the civilians for the most part, right? Like the most of the most of the sort of army infantry are just sitting there waiting to die for most of this mo- movie. They're just sitting ducks. And it's sort of one of the it almost read to me like one of those old-timey like British propaganda movies about like the pluck of the British people and um and that was really how it read to me I just thought this is a movie and I and so my grandmother grew up in England during World War II and so I've heard all the tales of these sorts of things and so that was what I was thinking about for the entire movie I just kept thinking oh Nana was getting bombed around this time you know Mm -hmm. like so that was what came across to me by planes we should say yes by planes Um, (laughs) she was probably also getting bombed let's be real yeah (laughs) well I have so many things I want to ask you guys about so one one thing about this James all right so we, we are dealing with one of the real key points of British mythos, you know, I mean, this is an incredible story uh, for England, although it's a story which I forget who pointed this out, but uh, the other countries might not make that big a story out. It's essentially a story of colossal defeat. Yes, um, exactly. And, and, and it's doing and a very impressive retreat uh, <laughs> in the face of colossal defeat. But it really means something very specific to the British. Now, I do feel as though I, I think I thought everything that you said was just a brilliant description of what Nolan does. I think it, it you could argue that it costs him certain things, and and certainly the flotilla we know involved about seven hundred boats. It, it, it seems like a very small thing in this movie. That I mean, I know he's not David Lean. He's not going to do some huge sweeping shot with all these fluttering banners from these little boats and stuff like that. But I don't know. <laughs> 
I thought I, I wanted a little bit more somehow, you know, of, of what we think of anyway of the, as that kind of movie. Well, I think that his style of movie making is to play hard to get to begin with, right from Memento, um, that it's challenging the audience to pick out what's going on and to have some sort of sense of, like in the Batman movies, it's the psychology, the distorted psychology of the of the character that you have to sort of draw out. And mm. it appears to be a superhero movie, but then it turns out to be a story of psychological turmoil, really. And the characters who are sort of spinning around it one of the fascinating things to me about uh, uh, about that approach um, is that it's like the the content of what uh, that what uh, he's trying to get across um, is really what he's really focusing on, and he's not turning the movie. For instance, I I thought uh, what you said, Kate, about the movie being flat. I think it's actually flat for a reason. In that, number one, it is about a defeat. But it's also about a rescue. But it's a, it's a, it's a, a rescue uh, a, from a horrible situation of these soldiers who were stranded. Yet um, uh, what lies on the horizon is actually the possibility that England might get invaded. And it was quite likely, in fact. And many people felt that the enormous might of the, army, the German army was ready to do just that. And... The movie doesn't have a start and a finish and a climax. And at the end of it, I felt it was kind of like um, when you've seen a stirring piece of music or heard a stirring recitation of some kind that that it's like you let your breath out. Of, wow. Mm. You know, sort of the tension is lost at, at that point and you're, you're, you're feeling your body in a different place and your head is like trying to make sense of it. But I don't think that um, – I, I, I think that that's what is really thrilling to me about this movie actually, that it doesn't pander to the audience. It's really trying to say something a little different, which is to tell a story in a, in a relatively simple, visceral way that doesn't involve the sort of you know, massive flotilla of these small boats. Mm. But it does touch on the nature of the British myth uh, – or not myth actually, in some ways it's very true – about ordinary people – who wanted to do something and they jumped in their boats. And in fact, some of them, like um, uh, Mark Rylance's character, jump in the boat before the military get to him <laughs> to tell him to do this. And and this is something that is very fundamental about, you know, the, the, the idea of what was going on in World War II and how people were being, how you had all of these young people who were coming to war, who were coming from this disastrous defeat in war and the question was, what was next? And you have this feeling of apprehension about it. And all of that, to me, gave it a reality that was totally different. Um, I, I have a whole bunch of other things I, I want to talk about with that. But I want to go back to, to a little bit to technique, Kate. One of the things that clearly Nolan wants us to do is lose track of time. And um, he... At the beginning of this movie, he does a thing that no director has ever done, which is he kind of prevents, he kind of presents the equivalent of a legend on a map. Uh, he says the mole, which is the name of this pier that they're all trying to use to get their boats. And the mole equals one week, and then you're told that the the sea equals one day, and that the air equals one hour. And this, it didn't quite sink in with me what he was telling me. Yeah. <laughs> but what he's telling you is that he is about to tell you three different narratives with three different sets of characters. And he is going to interleave those um, narratives. But they really – they're not simultaneous. And in fact, 
between that and this very disorienting Hans Zimmer score, which is like these weird tones that kind of rise and never quite resolve themselves, uh, Tim Cohn, our intern, said it's like a barber's pole. It's kind of like seems to be moving up and down at the same time. There was, I don't know, I had kind of a time loss. while I, I had no idea how long the movie was when I walked out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I agree with you uh, that I I didn't really have a sense of time uh, either, but he Nolan really did build up this tension and suspense, and he went he did these quick cuts uh, within the land, sea, and air dramas, and then he shifted from one to the other very quickly, combined with with the Z- the Zimmer music. It does create this tension. But again, my question is, like, to what end, to what purpose? Um, And going back to what Colin was saying, the point he brought up about the hero, if you think about the hero's journey uh, that involves a change, the only character that really changes is the son, and he's the only one who returns home to take back something new that he's won or gained from the experience. Um, and I, I, I have to say that I found the absence of women and the absence of the colonial uh, uh, units within this, the evacuation to be There has been a little criticism of that the Indian uh, army is not, not shown there. And the Senegalese yeah. units and the units from Chad and, other, and North Africa as well. Um, I, I I don't know, Teresa. Do you want to just quickly react to that, or I, I like I have a whole other direction. I don't. You're sure. Well, Kate and I talked about it a little downstairs. I didn't have the same reaction to women. I've read the same criticisms about the uh, colonial armies, um, but you know, there were women on the some of the boats that get sunk. You know, they're nurses. Mm-hmm. They're they're part of the. Um, there were even women on some of those civilian boats, actually, when they arrived. There's a lady who was sort of jauntily dressed right. for a day <laughs> day at sea. And, you know, so I think I'm, you know, I don't really, we talked about where would you fit in more women? And you, Kate's idea was sort of at the homecoming. But that doesn't feel, to me, that feels just tacked on. That doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel needed. We see women dying on boats, you know, trying to save these guys from the beach. Yeah, not exactly. We don't exactly see them them dying. We know they're there. Well, we don't really see anyone yeah. dying. Yeah. yeah. The uh-huh. I, I, one thing that I will say is that there, I think that one of the things that he's trying to do is to create a pretty small universe to work mm-hmm. in. So there are these three three basic stories. One of them is the story that's taking place on the beach, and it involves a number of protagonists. Uh, we can say a little bit about who they are. There's this other story at sea. That's Mark Rylance, uh, the fabulous British actor who plays just a guy who owns a, what looks like a pretty nice pleasure boat. And he takes off with his sweater vest and his tie, which he never removes the entire time, uh, and does what he can uh, to help uh, along with his uh, son and another boy. And um, and then the last one takes place in the air. Um, there's some rule in movies that uh, because Tom Hardy is too beautiful, you have to put a mask over his face. So he is this Spitfire ace uh, 
Uh, I mean, this is at least three times, right? It's in the Mad Max movie, and then he's Bane <laughs> in the Batman movies. Yeah, and it's like, like you have to cover Tom Hardy's face. I did see that. <laughs> I actually saw it mentioned before the movie, but yeah. just didn't register they were talking about Dunkirk. So then right. at the end, when he finally takes off his mask, I was like, oh, that's Tom that's Hardy, Tom and Hardy. that's that right. thing I read. Yeah. yeah. But I, 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 I have to feel that Tom Hardy is complicit with this, that yeah. this has become mm-hmm. part of his shtick. Sh- yeah. You want to see my beauty? You have yeah. to pay extra. Right. Well, so, but, but yeah, I, with that last scene with him kind of posing and looking out before he's captured right. by well, the Not too many spoilers. Not too many spoilers. Oh, you can't spoil. Well, a comics, yeah. Colin, uh, really. Come on now. Not too many spoilers here. <laughs> well, although I, I'm debating, there's the thing that I, I that I, I wanted to talk about. I'm trying to think of a way to talk about it without doing a spoiler. But what I was saying was this kind of small universe notion that um, you don't really see until the very end of the movie. You don't see a German. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even then, you really don't see a German. You don't see a German. You know, I, I don't think you hear the word German mentioned. Maybe it's once or twice. You might hear the word Nazi somewhere. But really, it, this is there's a way in which this is kind of abstracted a little bit from context. These are people who, in a way, they could almost be in Syria or some other horrible mm-hmm. place. You know, this isn't quite so much about the specific geopolitics of that moment. You're not shown the enemy. You're not shown much discussion. And I think that's one of the reasons that it, it's is kind of maybe as ethnically confined as it is too. It, it is this little abstracted moment. Um, and, and you know, somebody just tweeted and said, is this in some ways a Brexit movie? Um, and and, I, I, um, and uh, being British is very in vogue in Britain among Brexiteers, this person tweets. And I sort of think, how can I do this without spoiling it? Um, you can't spoil anything, Colin. Go ahead. It's well, th- okay. there's there's a moment near the end where the, where a certain character, who's a very famous person in the iconography of Britain, um, says that he's not leaving uh, Dunkirk because he has to help the French too. Um, and to me, that's the anti-Brexit statement, right? That's mm-hmm. the statement where this isn't really a movie about geopolitics. It's a movie about survival in a really terrible war situation. And it is, as James said, this just very immersive experience where I think you know they're trying to show you. What what that's like. But if, to the extent that it is about it, it is like that one line from Branna, I think, is the kind of the anti-Brexit line. Yeah, I, I agree with that, actually. I think that's that, that that's strongly so. I mean, there's a, there's a strong element of sort of um, the shared experience and, and the whole nature of actually getting across the uh, getting across the divide between people who are actually in a war situation and people who are not. And I think that um, there's also the, the very nature of uh, of Christopher Nolan's directing style is ellipsis and uh, the the uh, alleg- using allegory and sort of teasing you with things that might be true and might not be true, mm-hmm. uh, timeline distortions. I mean, this this film it, 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 it's really kind of like there's a there's a reflection of his earlier film Memento in that introduction at the beginning with a sort of puzzling sort of thing at first you don't realize that what those uh, texts at the beginning mean and then it comes into it um, and I think within that sort of world of allegory I mean I do I've, I've always felt that you know particularly British war movies ignored the participation of colonial peoples who had been dominated and conscripted basically to fight the wars and that's a great shortcoming in many films that have been highly praised I do sort of think in this particular film, it's it it. it I, I wouldn't say it's forgivable. I think they could have done something about that. But the movie is really not about reality of that of of uh, at that level. I don't think. Um, and so, 
to a certain extent, I forgive it that, and I don't forgive many other films for it. The, the, the problem I'm getting at, I guess, is that films and film directors who portray their work as being, this is my view of the reality, and therefore, you know, you, you, you then, implicit in that is that you should get the facts right. I'm not sure in this film, in, in, in Dunkirk, that there are any facts per se that it's not dealing with facts, it's dealing with experience, it's dealing with what happened here, and it's also dealing with the idea of being defeated and uh, being, at the end of the film, not winning anything there's also this other than I- surviving. There's also this idea, so much, they're constantly saying, I can practically see home, right? I can, yes, it's right yes, there. Yeah. And if you're Senegalese troop, that's not true for you. So if this is a movie about right, people just trying yeah. to get home, and you mm-hmm. and you then throw in like Indian troops who they're going home to they're going to England, they're not going home. It it sort of throws off that part of the narrative a little bit because so much of that for me, I kept weirdly I kept thinking about the Great British Baking Show because <laughs> one of my favorite things about that show is that they just stopped to drink tea in the middle of the competition all the time, and I just <laughs> kept thinking that all these people were just going to get home and start drinking. Well, tea I mean, even in the movie, got, there's there's yeah. n- there is no. <laughs> situation so dire in this movie and there are a lot of right. very dire situations that you are not 10 minutes away from a cup of tea. Well, um, actually at one point the father on the boat actually right. is uh-huh. serving tea. Right. 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 But, um, yeah, go ahead. But if I could just say, well, respond a bit to what, what uh, James was saying. I understand what you're saying about reality but m- movies also create these huge myths in our minds. I agree. And yeah. I think that the myth that there weren't African peoples and Indian peoples and West Indians living in France and Britain mm-hmm. during this time and before. And conscripted into war. And conscripted yeah. is, and that they weren't citizens also, is uh, to me that it, it, it's parallel to uh, our American belief that all the cowboys were white, right. Mm-hmm. Right. which well, they also, and also, one was was black. Yes, and also the truth about slavery and yeah. money and uh, all of those things. I agree; those things really do. They, they, our filmmaking, our art generally has not dealt with some really visceral, serious issues. That you know, I, I can't. It, it, it's. What I what I guess I'm saying about this is that Christopher uh, Christopher Nolan is really a, um, a a surrealist artist in this context, and I don't think anything anything about the film is linked directly to fact. But we do absolutely need to tell stories better. And actually, and, th- that's a nice segue into the next thing that we're going to be talking about, too, which is this uh, proposed uh, way of telling uh, a story like that on HBO. So we should probably go to a break here. We're running out of time. <laughs> I-, I will say just quickly that, for, uh, Grant, everything that you just said, I still think this is a movie's an important step up in the sense that we're seeing people saved from world domination by someone other than Thor and Iron Man. You know, that, that that's typically what we've been watching in movie theaters for the last two years. So, uh, you know, at least we're kind of crawling into reality a little bit. I show
oh, there's never enough time. We didn't get to talk about all the different configura- IMAX configurations. And, and James went to a place in Providence where when you watch Dunkirk, you can actually get wounded. It's like their equipment's <laughs> that good. It's the, one, have- it's the one theater where they put the old-style, tall IMAX screen, which is totally enveloping, right. really amazing. And, of course, the thing was shot on film. It can be shown in 70 millimeter, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we had to skip that. But uh, if you want to know where to go to completely, you know, you actually have a small sh- abrasion from shrapnel, uh, James will tell you how to get there. Uh, all right. So uh, we were talking towards the end of the last segment about, you know, how do you make some of these uh, important and, and tragic uh, consequences of history come alive in, in when you transfer them to the world of either – in historical drama or non-historical drama. Well, uh, I think that's a not too awkward segue into a weird controversy that popped up uh, in the last week or two uh, over HBO's plans uh, for a project called Confederate. You must have heard about it by now, even though it's nowhere close to being anywhere where you could see it. I mean, in fact, it's not clear that pen has been put to paper very much uh, on this. Uh, One of the reasons it's of interest is that the two Game of Thrones creators, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, uh, are behind it. It would be set in a world where slavery still exists, an alternative timeline where the southern states still seceded from the Union uh, and kept slavery. Uh, And um, it has been denounced. We should say, so I I don't have to sort of spring it back, that there are two African-American creators involved here, uh, Nichelle Tramble Spellman and Malcolm Spellman, um, who feel as though that they've got something to say with this project. But it's already been denounced and it's been attacked as slavery fan fiction, among other things. Um, And well, I don't know. Kate, I mean, I think you and I had the same initial initial reaction. I remember being at a theater where there was uh, a, uh, a bunch of uh, Christians protesting Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. And I was there to cover it as a newspaper person. And I said, well, have you seen the movie? What is it you don't like? And they said, oh, no, we're not seeing this movie. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of the initial problem here. Like, what is it that people are in such a lather about? And how can they know? Yeah, I I believe in seeing the movie. I believe in reading the book and then taking it from there. Uh, At the same time, I do have to um, ask myself why this scenario now, especially in the current uh, political and social um, situation we find ourselves in. And I guess, um, you know, I, I, I would like to see it, but I do have to ask, well, why this movie now? You know, is this, uh, what, like a response to uh, Nate Parker's um, The Birth of a Nation? Uh, but I, I, my mind goes to Kindred by Octavia Butler, uh, which is a fantasy about an African-American woman being snatched back into slavery through time travel and she has to make some decisions about it and I, I again I have to think about think back to the conversation that James and I were having about about Dunkirk and mythology I think it's important the way we represent 
the past and the way we represent the future and who are we leaving out of the past and who are we leaving out of the future. But, uh, you know, Teresa, as you pointed out in one of your emails, uh, alternative history is having a moment right now anyway. I mean, it's always having a moment. Uh, and, I mean, the two most popular things, the most popular thing for many years mm-hmm. is what if the Germans won the war? That's, of course, uh, Philip Roth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the man in the high castle. It, it's uh, a lot of those things. And and now what if the outcome of the Civil War were slightly different uh, is kind of is kind of having a moment too. And there's some some things that alternative history can do. Right. I think this sort so as Kate's asking why this right now, the thing that keeps coming to mind for me is are these sort of uh, controversies we hear about textbooks that refer to slaves as workers or something ridiculous like that. And um, yes. And um, and so I think or 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 movies and books like Gone with the Wind, where slavery is represented as an essentially benign force in life. Exactly. And so I think but we're hearing about this right now being taught in school through textbooks. Right. And we're also having these uh, fights over Confederate monuments in the South. And so I think this is a really good time to use the idea of alternative history to bring home the realities that maybe are not being taught properly in school or, um, you know, there are still people who just think, you know, they're just proud Southerners. These Confederate monuments are just about being proud Southerners. And there may be there are plenty of arguments to be made to keep those monuments around, but they then have to be put in a larger context and a show like this can do can do that. Yeah, James. What well, are your thoughts? I, I, I really, I think you make an excellent point, uh, Teresa, about that. That that you really, um, I mean, in the midst of all sorts of disinformation, deliberate disinformation, and actually not addressing real issues, it is almost a sort of a rescue to see, okay, well, somebody who's a good writer, people who really have their hearts in telling the truth, can actually produce a story that is played on television or as a movie, and it actually has a positive effect. But I think it also reflects a very sad situation that we have to deal with that conversation through a fictional creation like that. I mean, I think that the 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 time to have a discussion about the wealth that was created by slavery all over the world and the fact that that lies at the base of our massive commercial machine around the world and that this massive commercial machine has now sort of taken over to such an extent that people's lives are really deleteriously affected by it and we still we still cannot have that conversation about the nature of slavery and that slavery was something that produced a lot of wealth for people who are alive now and who are deciding things like what's going to happen with rights, who's going to vote, and stuff like that. And that, to me, is, I mean, that's a background to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, I, I appreciate the, the, the honesty of people who really want to tell this story, but is there no way to actually have more of a discussion that actually is based in reality and actually talks about the nature of, okay, what about an enormous bank that is based on the fortunes of slavery Mm -hmm. and that we haven't had that discussion. And just one last thing. One of the things that bothered me about this was it being called confederate, not confederacy Mm -hmm. or like it's using the word confederate. uh, And there's a sort of subtle message about that, that this is somebody who's actually, you know, maybe doing the wrong thing but is somehow admirable. 
I don't know if I'm alone in that, but it's like a yeah, creepy a sort of feel. title as well. This Although I think I would put that in the category of give it time. Let's see what it really is. Let's see why it's really called that. I, I do want to say, first of all, James, I, I feel like one thing doesn't preclude the other. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates wants to write really serious books about reparations and stuff like that. He also wants to work on comic books. Um, <laughs> you know, th- that, that uh, and I think creators can do a lot of different things. I, I, I am a big uh, exponent of um, alternative history stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, everybody was blown away by Underground Railroad, but I was also blown away by Ben Winters's Underground Airlines, which has a very similar kind of plot. The notion is that there's still four states uh, in a contemporary environment that, that have slavery. And not only do they have slavery, but they have um, uh, runaway slaves and they have people who are sent out to get them. That's very much the plot uh, of this. But, I mean, it does very much a call attention to just in the same way that you. Pr- I probably don't want to know who made this Fitbit uh, that's on my wrist right now and what kind of working conditions that they had. because was... they, You know, but, I mean, because it was probably in Asia and it was probably terrible. But, I mean, in, in this scenario and presumably in the one that's in Confederate, those people are in Georgia and they're slaves and they're making your, you know, the stuff that you use. And I think that in a way slaps people in the face a little bit harder because it's, it's something they could recognize. A thing that I could go to the store and buy could be made by American slaves. I think if you write that right and you present it right, it can have a lot of force to it. All right, I'll stop babbling. Anybody want to get a last word in a minute before we dive into the, the other story? You stole my point. To, that was yeah, sort of yeah. the thing I was thinking. You said earlier the thing about, you know, slaves in Georgia making something. And the first thing that popped into my head there was there are slaves in Bangladesh making something, you know, your old Navy shorts or something like that right now. So, I mean, they may be getting paid something, but it's it's not fair working conditions. And people, we do not think about that as Americans. We just do not mm. to any degree that matters. And... It's I hope I if this show does one thing, I hope that's one of the things that makes people think about. I, I, I do agree about that. I mean, I, I think that if you could tell a story right, you can make people think about something they would prefer not to think about that. That is good. But I somehow this has to be brought home to us mm-hmm. and our society, people with money, people with power. And why are why are we not? sort of linking it with that storytelling. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to switch topics here from um, uh, the, the very serious ponderances that you just heard <laughs> to we don't know what. We don't – let me just – I'll put it in the framework of my own life. I've already said I got yelled at for even just trying to read this article quietly in bed. But really even just going down to my mailbox, I'm old-fashioned enough so that certain magazines still get delivered to my house. And so New York Magazine arrived. I pu- pulled it out of the mailbox and there on the cover were – uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, and there's this cover story about these love-struck, uh, that that word appears on the cover, love-struck a news people and their relationship with Donald Trump. And I, I really almost had trouble walking all the way back up the driveway. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I, thought I, I, I can't read this. It's not going to make me feel better, but I also feel like I can't not read it because it just feels like it's it's just a really junk food that I'm not going to be able to resist, even though I just know it's going to be awful for me. It's like the synthetic butter at the pop, popcorn in the movies or something like that. So we all read it. I don't think we all feel kind of dirty, I think. I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, I just can't believe this is Brzezinski's daughter and a former uh, representative uh, in Congress. And I, I, I fear that Joe and Mika are on their way to being this era's 
Duke and Duchess of Windsor after the fall. Mm-hmm. I have made that same analogy, uh, that she <laughs> is very much the uh, Wallace Simpson of the story. But I mean, in some ways, James, this is also very much um, a piece. It's hard to tell how much in control the writer of this piece is uh, or even to divine entirely what the writer's attitude towards this is. It's very much a piece about modern narcissism and the enshrinement of it and the fact that narcissists no longer feel that they have to in any way conceal their narcissism. Exactly. I, that's, that was my reaction. And so I had this vision of sort of this some, uh, first of all, a public relations firm being hired to clear up this image problem. <laughs> And then, uh, okay, let's sell this concept. And then they go around the magazines and, and wh- what do you know, New York bit. And they, they, they produce this, this article, which I don't know. I mean, so it, it, this, is a, this is a greatly under, uncovered story, I think, is how many people hire consultants like this and public relations consultants. And certainly both the network and the individuals have something to gain by having something like that happen. And it's kind of like humanizing people who are behaving in a totally bizarre fashion and actually appearing to facilitate some really awful things and yet trying to sort of recover and, and, and be the intelligent ones amidst this, this you know, sort of maelstrom of dreck. You mean somebody paid for this? Why didn't they do a better job? <laughs> <laughs> Just maybe they shouldn't get the final check. Well, I don't want to step on anything you might be yeah. getting ready to say. Well, here. this show was basic. I, I mean, this this article was virtually unreadable to me. I, it's, I started reading it, and then we weren't sure. I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about it, so I stopped. And then when we decided we were talking about it, I just sort of groaned and like <laughs> unhappily forced myself to finish reading it because it is... I mean, it's insane. There are quotes that go on for multiple paragraphs that, mm. that I have no idea who's talking by the end of them or who they're talking about. Well, that's and, because Joe and yeah. Mika don't know where one ends and the other picks up. Or oh, That quote's God. in there, right? They, 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 they can't tell where the boundaries are between the two of them. Anyway, continue. And there is, like, the first, you know, I, I don't know, like, it was probably four paragraphs of this article is about this rabbit that she gives him and then their rabbits <laughs> humping each other just, like, incessantly. You're what? Yeah, I don't know, and I I could not imagine. And and then he complain he gives the rabbit away because it scratches him. And I was like, who gets scratched by a rabbit? Just clip its nails. And then I I it was uh, I it was I I've never seen Morning Joe, and I will never watch it now because I came away just loathing these people and thinking like anyone who ever spent any time with Donald Trump voluntarily is probably a monster anyway. So. I don't need to know much more about these people. Well, one of the problems with this article, I'll just wrap this up because we got to get to endorsements anyway. I mean, it sort of conflates two questions. One of them is the highly uninteresting question of their relationship and how it mm-hmm. came to be and what form their love takes and to what degree it resembles what rabbits do. Um, <laughs> repeatedly. And, <laughs> repeatedly. And, and then there's this other – and that's – their narcissism is all very wrapped up in that. And then there's this other somewhat more pertinent question of to what degree did they come to Donald Trump as fawning coach dogs uh, – to try to secure some special place in his court and then having that not really work out and fall apart, uh, turn into a little bit more of an opposition party and begin begin picking at him. And, and I think 
that if um, somebody was hired James to correct a particular impression, I think that might have been really important to them, and I don't think they got what they wanted. By the end of the article, I, I'm fairly convinced that that's exactly what happened, that they attempted to ingratiate themselves with this man. They did not behave like actual journalists. And yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. The, the article itself turns out to reveal something they probably really weren't too happy about revealing. And I think that, that it's a demonstration, too, of, of like exactly how, how unaware do you have to be to realize it's dangerous to befriend somebody like Donald Trump, <laughs> that, especially if you're a news person. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to get the image of Joe Scarborough's bare, glistening ankles. <laughs> We did. Wipe from my brain. <laughs> yeah, we do have his, uh, references to his bare glistening ankles. We are not told what they glisten with. We have to stop right now, and you're probably pretty happy about that. We're going to take a break, and we'll come back. No, I shouted from the highest hills. I even told the golden Last, my heart's an open door. My secret love's no secret anymore. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ryan's Priebus. On Monday, we'll be back with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Before we do endorsements, I do as quickly want to tell you or remind you that on Sunday at 3 p.m. at the Schubert Theater in New Haven, Al Franken and I will be on stage in conversation together. The tickets are available from the Schubert box office. Teresa was just talking about what sorts of behaviors either do or don't make you an uh, a-hole. And... Uh, <laughs> I just want to say that my moment, uh, my, my a-hole moment of the day was saying to my significant other, yeah, we need to be in the car by 1.30 because Al's, uh, Al's going to call me then from the road. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, yeah, Al's going to call you, sure, because uh, you know Al, right? Uh, anyway, uh, but it'll be a great event, and please uh, do buy tickets and come. And when you buy a ticket, I think you get a book, and I get signed and stuff like that, so I think that's good. Um, all right, time to make some endorsements. Um, let's start with Teresa. I had a tough time this week because I've been consuming a lot of uh, frivolous garbage. But um, one thing I was I'm worried <laughs> how that sentence was going to end. <laughs> but um, amateur porn was like <laughs> my fear. I think. Um, <laughs> um, but so one thing I've been listening to that I think is worth listening to is a new podcast called Mogul, and it's the story of the life and death of a guy called Chris Lighty who. His sort of story is basically the rise of hip hop and, you know, um, you get all these really little interesting insights into that world, uh, the sort of 70s and 80s hip hop scene into the 90s. And then um, I and then eventually his, you know, rise to superstardom as an agent and and then eventually his death. And it's been really fascinating. And you get all these cool interviews with old school hip hop. So mogul. It's called mogul. All right. I have to keep keep us moving here for time's sake. Uh, James, what have you got? Um, A couple of books that are uh, giving me a lot of energy amidst the tide of Drek. No is not enough by Naomi Klein. 
And Nancy McLean, who's a historian, has written a book called Democracy in Chains, which really does go into the far background to find out where a lot of this stuff came from. How did we get where we are now? And one last thing, amidst a week of nasty attacks on LGBTQI and trans people, um, we're showing a fantastic restoration of Maurice, the film uh, that really was uh, Merchant Ivory's most extraordinary piece that came out at a time when nobody else wanted to fund films. Uh, and it has a young Hugh Grant and James Wilby that's running at Sydney Studio from today through next Thursday. Also, Angels in America, Perestroika is running there. Too, yes, on so, Sunday at uh, 1. Speaking yes. of LBGTQI. Anyway, uh, yeah. All Kate. right. Well, you just reminded me that Mark Doty and Elaine Miles are going to be at the Sunken Garden Poetry Festival coming up. Also, the James Merrill House Deck Party is happening on Saturday, August 5th. And the uh, Paul Brown Memorial Jazz Concert, Monday Night Free Jazz, continues at Bushnell Park. And last night, last evening, I got a tour of the Swift Factory in the north end of Hartford uh, from a gentleman named Patrick McKenna, and he, who works for Community Solutions, and it's all about development and people and, and bringing vibrancy to the North End. And that is C-M-T-Y-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S dot org, Community Solutions. I want to check it out more and learn more about it. All right. So uh, running out of time here, uh, but I do uh, want to say one of the conversations that we had uh, was about an NPR article uh, about women in pop and the centrality of women in pop and uh, how the canonical understanding of pop and rock and stuff like that could uh, benefit from making women more central to the conversation. I don't really see it. I couldn't figure out a way for us to talk about it. But it made me go back and look at my own uh, what's on my own uh, title playlist right now and uh, just, you know, just like discovering new music. I'm finding all kinds of incredible work by women. Um, I might make a list of them and put them up somewhere. But um, meanwhile, I think we're going to end with, do we have this? The McLeod Hedero. This is McLeod Hedero and Andrew Bird. It's a song about musical influence. Um, and McLeod Hedero, who on one occasion sat right here in the studio and played for an audience of just me, uh, is amazing. <laughs> 